You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in studio this new year by Billy Galanko. How are you doing, Billy? Very well. Happy to kick off 2024 with a, a fresh new episode. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. Did you did you get into the champagne and caviar over the new year? Not together. Technically, we on uh, New Year's Eve, my fiance and I did go get some sushi. We did like an omakase, which was really cool. Um, we brought our own wine to that, just like a, a nice Slovenian orange, actually made of Kerner, which is pretty cool. You don't see that grape very often. <laughs> so that was nice. But there was caviar with on um, some of the sushi and then afterward we went to just got a glass of champagne at one of our favorite wine bars yes and nice. how about you that was on was that on new year's eve yeah it was nice. cool you guys went away too over christmas right yep yeah we went up to i showed the family i went up to the bay area so i had my parents come in and showed them around san francisco which we had been when we were younger but they didn't really get more of an insider's view we stayed at a cool town across the way, across the bay, actually, from San Francisco called Tiburon. So it's a really I cool place. I was going to say Oakland? <laughs> oh, no, the other direction, like due north. Basically, it was like a rail town. It was a, essentially the end of a railroad that eventually goods were picked up from the northern part of California and brought over on barge to San Francisco. And then the last, the last ferry ran or the train ran maybe in the 60s, like early 60s, late 50s. So since then, it's just like this really beautiful area that's now just full of really wealthy homes um, and like a, a little main street. But it was never really developed for people until after the train left in like the 60s. So it's an interesting area that's um, really pretty. I highly recommend anybody go over there. It's a nice ferry back and forth to SF. So that was cool. And then we went up to Sonoma and had a great four days up there. We didn't end up going wine tasting. My parents were not that into wine tasting, but we took them over to Napa. And then throughout the weekend, I sprinkled in some wine education. My dad had his first Vermentino from Sardinia, which he was very excited about. He kept telling everybody he had a Vermentina. I had to keep correcting him, but uh, <laughs> one step at a time. I also found out he didn't know that Zinfandel was a grape. Not sure what he thought it was, but uh, he's like, oh, I just see it all the time. I thought maybe it was like a, a style or something. And I was like, Okay. So that was, it was an educational weekend all around, but we had some cool wines. I think another highlight, we had Spätle's on Christmas, um, for Christmas dinner that went with a lot of our other food too. I'm trying to remember the vintage. I think it only had five years on it, but, uh, that was really nice too. So we got a good smattering of wine along with some local California wine as well. What about you? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't in an exotic location. We were in Pittsburgh, which, uh, in the area for, I guess the days leading up to Christmas, we were there. And then had that Chilean Riesling I was telling you about with the weird size shaped bottle. Oh, yeah. Uh, How was that? It was good. I shared it with my sister-in-laws and it was super citrusy, like almost like sour, which I'd never. Yeah, I just I was it like took me aback. I, I didn't know that you could get those kind of that strong notes of, yeah, just like straight citrus, like lime, lemon from it. Um, Have you had many so, Australian Rieslings, like from Clay Valley? Yeah, I was thinking back, and I think I've got a few uh, from like Tasmania, but I, yeah, not probably not honestly. Yeah, not as much. Interesting. Yeah, no, that just sounds more like a Clay Valley Riesling to me. They always just say like that lemon lime is clear. clear. To me, the distinct giveaway on a Clay Valley Riesling is like kerosene, like an actual smell of kerosene, mm -hmm. not as much like a petrol or plastic smell. But that's yeah. that's cool. Um, yeah, it was really sick to see. Then the oh, go ahead. No, you finish up and I, I just, I pulled up, I have the bottle here that we had on Christmas. So I'll just talk about it oh, a little bit. But yeah, I guess. And then on New Year's, we, did we drink wine? Oh, we did. We had the, uh, Massacon Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, I picked that up actually when we were out in, oh, we were out in Napa actually for our private wealth conference that our team went to earlier this year. And we ate at a place that was selling it by the bottle and it was like 50% off if you buy and take it out uh, with you yeah that was cool grabbed a bottle of that you actually remind me next time we're up i need to 
we have a, a tasting with him that I have via by buying one of his NFTs. We were given a, oh, cool. a tasting with him, so I still need to redeem that. We were going to try to meet earlier in the fall, but I guess we'll have to do it in the winter. Anyway, Gallard might not honor that. <laughs> no, this is directly with him. So, and also, now that we're friends from the podcast, hey, there you go. he's great. Yeah. Now, we email back and forth sometimes. But yeah, no, so the wine we had, I was trying to remember because it was a, a well-known producer, the a Schloss Johannesburg wine from the Rheingau. And it's one of the most historical wineries up there. And that book that I've been continuing to listen to forever, The Story of Wine, I actually just got through some of the Riesling, more recent history of Riesling, I guess you would say, according to the book. So we're in the 1700s, <laughs> 1600s, 1700s. Schloss Johannesburg, though, had the first recorded ever Spätlese Harvest in 1775. They were the first ones to actually call so spur to style. So that's pretty cool. I thought that was interesting in the wine. Obviously, this wine was good, but I never really thought about the fact that they basically just talked about how they used rotten grapes instead of botrytis, like the terms. And there's a lot of debate whether they had always used them to make their wines better and they just didn't want to talk about it because they thought it would turn people off or if they just used it out of necessity and, and didn't really want to mention it. They just didn't think it was noteworthy. But eventually after the late middle 1700s, they started embracing it more and started talking about it. So it became a thing. So that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Did you guys have, were you with friends on New Year's and had some wine like after you guys went out together? How was? No, we just took it easy. We ended up just going to Covell, which we're going to have Matt Kaner on the podcast in a couple of weeks here. He was the former, one of the former owners of Covell, but it's like a, a local wine bar. It's one of our favorites. The one where basically you go tell them what you want. They give you multiple options to taste and then you, you pick from there. So they just had a, a bunch of sparkling there. So we just did a couple of glasses the next you went home before midnight and then took it easy. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think we were in bed at 11, 1045. <laughs> so nice. No, we, we made it to midnight, but we just took it easier at home. LA is a little crazy sometimes, especially with the Ubers at that time of night. So we decided not to. Well, now, right, now well, that we're in the new year, yeah, I'll say now that we're in the new year, we have some, a lot to look forward to. We have 51 more episodes coming in 2024. And I'm sure we'll <laughs> get to chat with a lot of industry folks and ex experts about some of what we'll talk about today, but we wanted to dive into some of the industry trend and wine and drink trend predictions for 2024. We have a bunch of articles here that we pulled up and, and wanted to pull a few of the topics out of them and, and see if we couldn't come up with some of our own and, and have a conversation about what some of these publications are predicting trends to watch in 2024. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be, I think it's really interesting to start the beginning of the year and look at what we saw loosely last year, what's going to continue on and what people are really seeing getting, gaining momentum moving into the new year. Um, I certainly have some opinions and it would be great to see if our audience kind of has like, the same kind of thoughts. Because I think sometimes people get in their, their little bubble of what they're drinking and it seems like it's a trend, but maybe because they're only seeking out information on that same thing, where it's sometimes when people mention other things that are going on, you you start thinking, oh, maybe I should try some of this. Or, you know, turns out not everybody's yep. drinking what I'm drinking, but they should be. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about a lot of these things that kind of come up here. Obviously, regenerative agriculture has been something we've been talking about for several years, the industry, low alcohol wines, those kinds of things, natural wines, of course. So let's dive into one of these here and see what are you looking at now? Which one did you start with? Let's just start with the Daily 750, there are six wine industry trends to watch. I think that's a good article to start with. Nice, yeah. Yeah, their number one is regenerative agriculture, regenerative viticulture, they say is the new global sustainability standard. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about um, regenerative farming, organic farming, viticulture generally this past year. I think we really, I guess, our, maybe our first conversation was with Jason Haas at mm -hmm. Tablas earlier in the year, who obviously they're leaders in this. But what do you think the main focus is going to be this year around that topic? I guess first, let's take one step back and explain to everybody what it is. So what, what they're getting at now is by saying it's the new global sustainability standard is if you think about, I don't know, even three, four years ago, everybody was looking for a sustainably produced wine, just sustainable wine. Then it transformed into organic. People started also looking for maybe things that were more biodynamic and using kind of those terms to describe 
the agriculture. And what sustainability really means is in the wine terms, in the, at the wineries I've worked at and in the industry as a whole is you're, it's almost like the Hippocratic Oath, I guess, for doctors. It's like their first uh, kind of mandate is to do no harm. So like sustainability is really to try to not impact your vineyard in a negative way and then hope, hoping that the way that you treat at your vineyard in terms of viticulture, and it's also has a lot of wider meanings for social sustainability. But basically, the first goal is to do no harm. The second goal is try to enhance and, and bring some elements in to improving your vineyard if possible, but it's not really necessary. And organic is basically doing that, but with non-synthetic items. So the next step beyond that in biodynamic viticulture practices some of these things as well. So they overlap with regenerative is like not only so when you're talking about regenerative, it's not only are you trying to do no harm and maybe something also good comes by it, or you're just trying to treat your vines in a certain way that allow for great yields, but it's also giving back and actually enhancing and improving the soil and the environment around the vineyards. Regenerative is really taking back and it's easy for a lot of vineyards now because they've been farmed in such a conventional manner for so long that you're basically making the soil more fertile. You're making it able to hold more water. You're really enhancing the growing environment rather than just not doing any harm anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, the comment here from the article is working with nature, not against it, which I think captures what you're saying. And I th- I think that some of, uh, well, I, I like the regenerative label because it seems to me to be like the broadest and encompassing of the most practices outside of just not putting a chemical on the plants. But yeah, I think some of those practices turn the vineyard and the winery and, and that and like the estate into a farm, whereas I, in the past, haven't necessarily thought of a vineyard or, or a winery estate as a farm. But a lot of these practices actually make it start to feel like that when you talk about integrating livestock and maybe doing less mechanical tilling and things like that. Yeah, just integrating with the area around the vines. Yeah, yeah. And I think an even better term for me is like creating your or building an ecosystem. It's you're not just really focused on monovarietal planting anymore. You're really making a welcome environment for all sorts of like species, um, whether they be farm animals or domesticated animals or like bugs that you want to live there or even, um, you know, you can't necessarily have deer running through. But there are certain other animals that you do want to have a little bit of this wildlife nearby um, and basically make it a, a really welcoming environment for everything rather than just trying to see if you can grow plants. Um, like vines in isolation and just make great grapes. So I, I think that's great. And what, what they're talking about, I think, with the baseline, and I'd like to get your thoughts here too, is like sustainability, that term got so widely used and it's not really legally defined anywhere. So I think that just ended up becoming meaningless. Organic, you can still add a lot of different additives and things to the vineyards, to the wine. So I think that, again, means it is helpful and it, it helps give you a sense of what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily hold them to a certain standard in farming and like enhancing their environment, the natural environment. And then biodynamic has its whole own lunar calendar following and some almost astrological aspects to it, where it's sure a lot of it was good, but you can't necessarily, there are some elements that are pushed people the wrong way. So I think regenerative is a great way to say we do as much as we we're doing way more than extra. We're not just doing organic. We're really trying to have a 360 ecosystem that we're building that's enhancing things and making great wine at the same time. Yeah, it makes me question, though, who some of these regenerative practices are for in terms of what kind of producer. Because a lot of these, maybe organic, quote unquote, might be as far as a large producer can go, just like practically in terms of scale with some of these things. I might be selling that short a little bit, or but then like really small producers a lot of them actually just are kind of essentially working farms with fairly little intervention, like not a ton of like tech or big equipment. And so is it really just for these sort of middling producers? Yeah, just interesting who it's supposed who this trend is supposed to be targeting because and I say targeting because certainly there is a group of people that say, yeah, this makes these practices make better wine, healthier ecosystem overall. But it's also, at least sometimes to convert some of those practice, practices can be not 
not cost nothing. <laughs> so they can certainly be expensive to, to make some of these changes. So I just wonder practically who a lot of these things are for targeted at. Yeah, I think your point, it is expensive if you're big to do this. So like yep. the, the examples they have in this article are Jackson Family Wines, Moet Hennessy, and Famille, or Famille uh, Perrin, which is in the Rhone area. Those are all either pretty big companies, like Jackson Family is a really large company, so they have the funds to be able to do this at scale if they would like to. Moet Hennessy, Champagne is becoming one of the most sustainable uh, kind of regions as a whole. So I, I think making that next step over it isn't a huge leap and trying to differentiate themselves from other, some of the other main houses. And then the Famille Perrin down in the, the Rhone Valley, Southern Rhone, Northern Rhone, mainly the Southern Rhone for the Melchiorin. It's easier down there just because of the climate. When it's warm and dry, you don't need to use as much, as many sprays and chemicals anyway. So I, I think there's definitely environmental factors. Like you're not going to see everywhere in Bordeaux doing this right away, just like you haven't seen them in doing sustainability things until more recently is because they're still trying to figure out how to adapt these practices and make them work for specific climates and sizes. But I think to your point right now, it is more isolated to the small to medium sized producers or bigger ones with enough money to make it work. Yeah, I think one of the things we've heard from producers a couple of times on the podcast is just concern over some of the like certifying bodies and credentialing that can pop up around these practices. Oh, I want this sticker on my bottle. So I'm going to spend this money here to make this change on paper kind of thing. And th then we've definitely heard from the producers who are really serious about these efforts, Jason at Tablas Creek. I think the goal is to, yes, inform consumers about changes that are happening and inform them about how wine has been made historically and stuff like that, but to not do harm to producers who aren't, they don't have currently harmful practices, but they're also not taking steps just to check boxes and get a certification. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out in the industry and what kinds yeah. of these certificates people actually end up caring about. And it looks like here, the one that they mentioned the most is the Regenerative Organic Certified Program, which Tablas is now certified under. It looks That's like right. That yeah. really just launched in 2023. I, I think that'll help a lot. And especially if it can be a global thing, it looks like it's US led, but it's a global side of things. So I think that'll be helpful because I think that is what happened. Like we were saying with sustainability and even organic, every country, there wasn't really a global standard. Um, there was like Demeter for, for biodynamic, but it wasn't a real global standard, which allowed everything to become meaningless. But yeah. 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 Which cool. one do you want to jump on next? You pick. I just picked the last one. You pick this one. Okay. Co let's do your co-ferments then. In 750, the headline is co-fermentation becomes increasingly common. Why don't you tell listeners what a co-ferment is real quick, and then we'll get we'll see how widespread it actually is now and what more common actually means. Well, I will say first, at the, in the beginning of this article, they say Marley is incubating a petite man saying, so I wonder how small he was and what did he sing? But apparently his name was Papa. <laughs> <laughs> I can't miss an opportunity to say how small was he and what did he sing? But yeah, no, so this is interesting here because it mentions a couple, the article mentions a couple articles that are wines that I have on a fairly regular basis, like Buddy on here. And we actually, before we went to dinner on Chris, on New Year's Eve, we actually had a, a Swedish co-ferment, which was mostly apples with some various berries as well as a little bit of grapes. But I think this is a trend that I really like and i'd like to get your thoughts i don't think you saw the other wine i'm about to mention as much but so remember like i think it was last year or maybe the year before piquettes were such a big thing and i was really big personally on piquettes um i have seen far fewer piquettes in the market and i've seen far more co-ferments so i think number one people are more open to it in things that are made from other than grapes Two, I think it's a transition from the natural wine where people just see cool labels and cool colors and they're like, if it's a certain alcohol percentage and it looks nice, I'll drink it. And three, I think this is a product of these regions and global warming, if climate change, as you want to say, some regions becoming marginal for, for different things. So maybe they're marginal for grapes, but they have these like native fruits that have always grown there really well. And now these worlds are colliding and they're starting to make some of these things, even as far north as like Sweden, for example, they're growing apples and maybe they're making these co-ferments and trying to make a little more unique of a beverage. What are your thoughts? Yeah, in the US, we see that in Vermont, 
we see it in the Carolinas, I believe, too. I think you actually had something like that down in Florida, didn't you? This I don't year? think that was this year, but I don't think those were co-ferments. Was that, um, that was just a weird sparkling muscadine. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely even being we're both from Virginia. There are several producers of both cider and wine who have experimented with co-ferments and currently produce them. The for me at least, and mostly I think, I guess actually almost all of the co-ferments have either been with non-Venice vinifera grapes or with apples. Um, haven't had too much outside of that wheelhouse but i know that you can basically maybe pear had in the past mm-hmm. um, but it's basically any fruit or it doesn't even have to be fruit right that you ferment with the grapes yeah uh, yeah raw like raw honey maple sap is li- listed here sumac berries so yeah i think there's a lot to explore here i think i'm just trying to think of the most likely angle that consumer comes to products like that and i think it's through the cider kind of lane right i think it's yeah there's two lanes as with a bunch of these weird things my fiance and i are like prime the prime audience because we the only club i'm actually a member of right now is a, a spanish style cider club a son of man from up in oregon they basically send you two of their ciders and two that they bring in from spain each quarter but so it's people who are either into ciders in general like i drink a bunch of those i drink pear ciders and people i think who like the lower alcohol, maybe they've just been introduced to it, but the pet nat style wines, like what these co-ferments, we often get them in place of a pet nat, or if we want something a little bit more interesting or more than one note than like a, a cider. So they're, I think they're for people who are looking for lower ABV. These tend to be below 10. The one we had this weekend was 5.5, but they tend to be below 10% and they often have that like bubbles. So it's like you can have this almost wine-like experience with the sparkling without the alcohol that's really coming with maybe a a champagne or the price point really too, because they tend to be very affordable. Yeah, they're prime through the week wines, low alcohol, like you said, affordable, food-friendly, especially like some of the sparkling characteristics and likely a little bit of sugar, right? Like residual sugar, I'd imagine, in a lot of them. Maybe maybe the dry style. What style is more prominent, The dry, like a dry style? Or something with some residual sugar. We we've seen mostly depends. dry. Oh right. Really? Yeah, I've yeah, we really only drink the dry one. I think they're off not off putting when they're like when there's RS, but like, especially because the styles that I've been seeing though also are either these sparkling ones. So they're they're either bottled sparkling and they might be disgorged like a little bit, or they were bottled with their yeast like a pet nat. So that continued the yeah. the fermentation side and eats the rest of the sugar. But what I have seen compared to like pet nats, for example, in these is when they purposely make a co-ferment, it tends to have, there's less variation bottle to bottle. Like a co-fer, like a, a pet nut, you put it in with the yeast and to your point, sometimes they come out sweet, sometimes they come out a little funky. I feel like these, yeah. there's more control through the process and they just come out more consistent and, and pretty fresh and, and always drinkable. There's like a style that you can come to expect. So I personally really love them. Nice, yeah. How would, I know we live in super different areas in terms of what's available around us at shops, but yeah, I guess that's something that listeners can just walk into their, I'm trying to think, like at a Total Wine or like a big box wine store, are they selling stuff like this right now or still have to go to a local wine shop? I don't know. I hmm. haven't, I haven't been I'm sure to... there's something at. Well, here, I just Googled and Total Wine does have at least one, con, it's called Considre. Considera an apple grape co-ferment. So yes, they have gone mainstream enough. Mm-hmm. This is an Oregon one, a fruit blend. So I, I think it probably depends on where you are in the country. Yeah, that might be right. Yeah. Because they also tend to use a lot more local stuff. But I, I think people will see it more and more. And I, I encourage everybody to go check it out. Because then you also start like learning more nuances of what apple, certain apples taste like, things mm-hmm. together. It's interesting because when they're all together, they taste different than you would expect on their own. There's a few that have had certain berries or things in them that I thought would maybe be too sweet or not up my alley. And then they're when they come together, when they're fermented together, they taste different. So I, I encourage everybody to check them out. 
Yeah, it's actually a good segue into the the East Coast being on the rise because this article mentions the law of the energy around co-fermentation and other trends is coming from the East Coast. Lots of different microclimates on the East Coast. It mentions here that Virginia vineyard acreage grew from under 3,000 acres in 2012 to over 5,000 in 2022, so almost doubling in 10 years. So yeah, definitely like a lot of exploration being done there as either producers, fruit growers are trying to transition some of their product offerings. I know a few cideries that are working on these co-ferments as well, or as the this 750 article mentions, Lightwell Survey at Commonwealth Crush. They're doing some interesting thing with hybrids and co-ferments. So yeah, definitely East Coast is, I think, a little bit of a leader in some of this space. Yeah, I don't know if I would, or on the co-ferment side, I would say, sure, I don't know if anybody's the leader right now because I think they are very local. So like out here in California, we see a bunch of ones from here in Oregon. But like when we were in Vermont, we saw a bunch. And to your point, so they're talking about new wineries are operating in Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. And all of these places, to your point, also do have histories with like apples, and at least it's some part. And they also have their own other fruits. So I think as more of these places start expanding their wine and people start taking that a little bit more seriously, the, the halfway point is these co-ferments. Because sometimes you're going to have grapes or a harvest that's not perfect yet because you're still testing terroir. You're testing different, maybe younger vines that aren't ready yet for the to be bottled on their own. So I think it's a really cool overlap to your point there of as these come on and the fruit gets more mature, you're going to see this is middle ground probably of the co-ferments more and more often anyway. Um, and then maybe you'll see even more serious wines coming out of them like you're seeing in Virginia. Yeah, I think the leading, you know, on the comment of leading co-fermentation in the U.S. is probably going to happen out of necessity, like you're saying, because um, some of these regions just really hard to put together a, yeah, put together a wine from just wine grapes right now. And yeah, in any way that producers can get a product out earlier, like a, a quality product out earlier, and get folks excited about it. I think that's definitely a good gateway for a lot of producers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've seen some out here too that are like ciders and maybe something else fermented with grape skins too. So it's like some of these small producers, they're going to make their wine, they could put the skins on. It's almost like a piquette made with apple juice. So I, I think there's just a lot of exploration. I think now more than ever, consumers are open to it. And I encourage everybody to go try them out, but I don't think People are, there's no longer that just fruit wine stigma, even though that's technically what some of these things are. Yeah, but I think sure. that used to have a very defined meaning. And when you say co-ferment, it's different. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think a question is when, and a question that th this article poses is, will people take East Coast wines seriously? And does that trend develop over this year and, and the next couple of years? And I think it's probably a lot of it going to be about what kind of experiences those producers create on site. So sales directly from the winery, creating interesting experiences at the winery and a cool environment for people to come and hang out and actually become exposed. Because yeah, you're right. Probably it's going to be a long, slow uphill battle for folks to just grab a, just say Virginia wine or Maryland or Pennsylvania wine off the shelf, even Vermont maybe, when it's next to something that maybe they're more familiar with. So I think a lot of it's probably about in-person experiences and the fact of the matter is in unless there's a lot of capital flowing into these regions to start projects it's really can be challenging for small producers to even have the capacity and ability to host people on premise and do tastings and things like that so hopefully more capital flows into some of these markets yeah i agree so it's transitioning here i think let's leave the other two aspects in this article to the end here because i, I want to talk about them together the actually yeah uh, look, we can touch on them actually quickly now i want to talk about the, the labor comes into focus their number two point as well as the last one number six grassroots efforts grassroots efforts push diversity and inclusion forward i think both of these um we've had we've had a number of folks talk to us about this as well but i think one is that certification we were talking about earlier for regenerative i actually wrote my W said diploma paper on sustainability and a big aspect of that was social and this new regenerative certification has a social component as well. But I think it's interesting to think about 
the and this is happening around the globe. One is in traditional wine regions like Port, for example, and up in Porto and the Douro Valley. Populations who normally did a lot of the winemaking um, are aging out. So they're increasingly having fewer people to pick. In other places, it's very common for seasonal workers to come in and do the picking. And in, in the U.S. also, there's just like a, a dwindling population as well for folks who want to be doing the picking. And then also the idea of like, how do you work with these folks to make sure everybody's treated fairly and they're actually adding you're supporting them so that they can add to the community so i think that's something that wine drinkers will be more focused on this next coming year and as well as the other aspect of inclusion and diversity i think the more that you can treat everybody working at the winery with a lot of quality and respect then that also will filter out into the community and i think then that'll also share more and bring more people into the industry. I think Jade talked a lot about this when we had her on the podcast, which was really interesting. And just different efforts to bring people from different backgrounds into the wine community. Yes, some of these things, one of the challenges I think becomes measuring impact or measuring steps that are actually being taken in some of these areas because some of it, when you start putting parameters around or check boxes, especially around like social capital and social quote unquote sustainability and things like that can become mm-hmm. sometimes a little dodgy or suspect some of the practices if yeah you're if you're just trying to do something for the sake of hitting a certification or being quote unquote ethical but i think in other ways yeah obviously super <laughs> super important to treat your workers re- with respect and it's sad that we have to put together a regenerative checklist and sustainability checklist that to make sure that happens but yeah, I hope that yeah does become more of a trend and comes to the forefront of the industry. And I'm glad that it's getting a lot of traction in terms of making sure that those things are a priority. And I think they go hand in hand, though, with the regenerative, because sometimes with just harvest, though, at a traditional winery, you can, the traditional vineyard, you just need to like basically have the rows. You can drive down with a tractor and do most of the mm-hmm. work most of the year, but then you need those folks during harvest to help. But if you're building more of an ecosystem that requires year round, tending you can't just bring people in and out and more manual you know, like tactile tending exactly, to it. Or, yeah, yeah. uh-huh and then like for pruning so it, it, and you build that relationship with the vineyard so i think it goes hand in hand with like you you want to support these folks who are getting to know and helping your ecosystem grow as well as there's it's not just like a transactional come in and do this and leave part as well so i think that's an aspect that i think people will look for and i also think there's obviously the diversity and inclusion part is is growing and the people like like Andre Houston Mack and oh, who was the other guy we had on the podcast recently? He was great. I don't know why I'm blinking on his name. He has his wine TV show. He's also great. Jade came on. So I think I'm really excited to see these like big personalities pushing everything forward in that aspect as well. Yeah, broader outside of just production, like representation and things like that within wine. I think that's grown leaps and bounds over the last few years. And like he's, to your point, Andre's career trajectory and, and the way that he's positioned himself in, in, in industry is evidence of that too. And Jermaine Stone was who I also that's mentioned right, yeah. in his awesome series, The Street Psalm. Yeah, no, I think both of those are really big steps. These are a lot of things that you, I didn't really hear about talked at all when I first joined the industry. So I think between that and also just a larger female presence and female voices, there's always been a few, but that's the wine industry had its quote unquote me too moment. And it's really, I think, come out better for it really well on the other side. So I'm really excited to see what 2024 has on that front. Last piece, I don't want to just gloss over this last part too, before we transition articles is uh, consolidation and cooperation are reshaping the industry. Mm. Love to get your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, the article mentions our friend Dan from Massacon, who's Mascon label got acquired by Ian J. Gallo, who also acquired Rumbauer, which is a very different producer in terms of scale and focus and style of their wines and things like that. And actually, I, I think one thing that I've been most like pleasantly surprised about over this past year and talking with people on the podcast has been how positive some of these merger and acquisition relationships have been, at least in the early, early stages. And we'll see long term how some of that plays out with these brands. But in the past, I think that felt like a lot of negative stigma around consolidation, merger acquisition, these kinds of things. And 
yeah, I, th- that's maybe one of my biggest takeaways from doing the podcast this year is how positive some of those relationships can be, even with maybe a, a large conglomerate buying out a small producer. Yeah, yeah, I think from some of them, we've heard the money, additional money helps a lot. Um, but but I, I think in the grand scheme of things, I would prefer less consolidation and more of these independent people really all forging their own path. But unfortunately, the way the U.S. is set up with the distribution networks and everything, like if you do want to grow and get your wine out there, it's very difficult unless you have these macro distribution agreements with all the different distributors throughout the country. So I, I think it's a necessary evil for the U.S. Hopefully these companies will allow each of these people to continue having their own personalities and farming and doing things the way that they want to make great wine. But yeah, I it's think very, it's very uncommon to like to go on your line of some of the barriers, right? Like the distribution piece is a barrier, but also just the like levers that you can use to scale access to capital and like flexible capital is a challenge for a lot of these producers. It would be hard pressed to walk into a small producer with any kind of presence in a particular region here in the U.S., and the answer from them to what's your biggest opportunity, I'm sure they would say that we just can't make enough or bottle enough wine like we have the demand. I feel like I've heard that so many times. And at the end of the day, that's like a capital issue, a flexibility issue. And to your point, an issue of just like access to distribution. Yeah, yeah. But I I will say I won't name names for the sake of privacy. But I think some of these times when producers are acquired, they do want to scale. But then the company encourages them or requires them to scale more than they would otherwise in mm-hmm. order to make a profit. It's not just to make the winery happy. It's to to help the bottom line of the whole company. So I think that's where you start walking that line of, is it better for the industry overall or is it better? So it, I, I think you would find different answers depending on a case, like on a case-by-case basis and depending on yep. what these KPIs and metrics are. <laughs> like our friend Jim at the farm, they're perfectly content at selling their wine, their couple their wine over the phone, a couple hundred cases and staying in that realm. I think that's great. I don't think they have any intention of <laughs> scaling to hundred thousand cases a year or anything like that. And which is totally fine if you can find a business model that works and probably matters whether or not the proprietors of that winery are working on a passion project <laughs> and an art project or if they're really trying to establish a legacy family business not that you can't have both but i think that middle ground is pretty hard to strike the way that our the industry set up yeah cool i think that covers this article let's quickly move over to another six trends six wine industry trends you can't ignore in 2024 i, I like to both for there for our listeners the daily 750 and this one are basically you have to be more like wine industry folks to come across these publications on a regular basis. So this is something we want to give you guys some exposure to what's behind the scenes. But Benson is Benson Marketing was actually the PR firm we used at my old company and they work with a bunch of different wineries. So they do have their finger on the pulse of especially the US consumer. Um, so one of theirs is the low and no alcohol craze continues. I think we can gloss over this one unless you have anything in particular that you want to talk about i think i I do think that the low alcohol trend especially in younger folks is is continuing i personally like drinking wines that are below 13 percent if possible do you have any specific thoughts there yeah i haven't seen too much like data or numbers around that trend so it's hard to know like how much of it is marketing hype and yeah just like online or media hype around that or Mm -hmm. if people are actually drinking it in like statistically significant amounts i'm not sure i don't know the answer to that haven't seen it maybe you do but yeah still i think still waiting to get a sense of that in my own like consumption journey and just like shopping and stuff like that i still don't quite have a sense that's a massive a widespread trend but yeah i think out here in la a lot more there are folks interested in that no alcohol. I think I just think you're th- seeing the industry as a whole transition to even people drinking more traditional styles of wine are looking more for that now balanced style, not those big 15% plus wines that they are maybe drinking in the early 2000s. So I think it's just a general industry mm-hmm. trends. And of course, you're going to see polls. And I think some of these folks are into it. And I think 
also like co-ferments play into that low alcohol side sure. as well. So do, do you think it's more of a style thing where people are like going through the shelves, picking up a bottle and looking at the ABV? Or do you think it's just, oh, this is a style that I'm interested in and it just happens to be low out, like versus drinking cab versus just drinking, I don't know, cab versus Pinot Noir. On average, you're going to have a little bit lower alcohol and then you can just go on down the line. I think it's people... I don't know if you're in the wine aisle necessarily. I don't think you're deciding between one bottle and another. But I think if you were out at like a restaurant or maybe you're in like the fridge cooler area and maybe you're like grocery store or something and you're trying to decide between some beers or maybe, I don't know, what other people drink these days, um, not ciders, seltzers, kombuchas, Mm -hmm. and you see something that looks nice and you also see it's basically the equivalent of the beer that you're, you were also considering. I think it's when you're like thinking across categories rather than deciding within wine itself that's interesting i wonder if then maybe if to me this trend or trend is no more than a fad until shops start like posting on like a sign or categorizing wines by abv beyond that i think it'd be hard for me to believe that it's yeah widespread until something like that happens yeah i think Again, I live in a weird area. It's not the point. That's not the point of this conversation. It doesn't have to be widespread. It's supposed to be a trend. And I certainly agree that it's something that's going to continue to be talked about. Just wondering how long it'll hang around. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, my dad always says, go to the Pittsburgh or the middle of the country to really see what America is. (laughs) So LA is not America. Around the corner for me, we do have a no alcohol spirits and wine shop that literally only has this stuff. But it's, I see people going in there, but it's, I, I think it'll, it'll continue, but I don't see those popping up everywhere. And there's not like that big of a demand. So to your point, it's a trend. I'll be interested to see how you it know, continues to evolve. We'll, we'll check um, back in November. And if that shop's still open, we know it's widespread. It's lasted longer <laughs> than I thought it would. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So we have no alcohol. Oh, something I'm sure you'll have a good bit to, to speak on. It's just interest in wines from unique growing areas. I wonder how much that has to do with our system of of distribution and sales here in the US. And it's really about discoverability at the end of the day, right? Uh, Drinking wines from unique and less sought after regions. Yeah. And I I brought this up with a number of our producer guests and friends, and they don't seem to quite agree with me, but I'm chalking up the natural wine movement, quote unquote, a little bit to this is people have always bought wine since I've known them on if they're not wine people necessarily, like one of their things is like, is the label cool or is it, does it look cool? And I think the natural wine movement has also brought in like interesting colors of wine as well as funky labels. So now I think people are more open to, they just tried a bunch of things and they're like, if it looks cool, whether it be like the label or the bottle, they're open to trying it and they're less particular. We've moved away from this monolithic Chardonnay, is it Chardonnay, Cab, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot, there used to be like four or five varieties that people went and if it wasn't that they wouldn't get it. Now I think they're like, this looks cool. Maybe it has a story. I want to know more about this story, but I don't know anything about grape varieties anyway, so it doesn't matter. I want to try it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, sometimes my I, I get stuck thinking that quote unquote the average person, I just mean person who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking and talking about wine, walks into us to a wine shop and is oh i'm i want to select a pinot for tonight's whatever it's not how most people walk into a shop so i think yeah to your point there's definitely an opportunity with fun packaging and colors and even this like low alcohol thing like all of that sort of fits if you're trying to design a product to catch someone's attention and get them to try something new that's gonna happen right so yeah i think that's cool it's fun to for me to grab some of those bottles like we talked about earlier through the week and just yeah stick a bottle of something colorful in your shopping cart on the way out that's cool yeah and i think i just among my friends now and i'm 34 so mid 30s but even that and a little bit older i don't see it as much with my parents and like their friends so like mid to late 60s whereas if i bring a wine they're like oh is it white or red is it from cool is it from like california or is it from like somewhere they know but then like when I have the younger friends, even like mid 40s and below, if you bring something from an instead of like a region outside of France or Spain or wherever, 
people are interested by it. It's more intriguing to them. They're like, oh, cool. It's a, even if it's just Greece, is it Greek wine? Is it a Lebanese wine? Oh, wow. They want to learn more. Whereas if, oh, cool. Yeah, it's a French wine. Like I've had French wine before. And I don't know. I think I feel like it's intriguing people more in the storytelling a little bit aspect of it. I also, this might be just my opinion, but I think it lowers people's intimidation factor being like, nobody knows what wine from this area tastes like. So I won't be made fun of or nobody will have a better one from that place. It's cool. This is just neat because it's lesser known. I I think it lowers that barrier a little bit. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, for sure. Because you can hand someone a Lebanese wine and say something like, ah, see if you like this. (laughs) Versus that's probably not the way that you introduce like a California or French wine or something. Um, you know, and I think that extends out to, uh, unique methods of production or just unique geographies, not even just like unique regions. So yeah, it's really about that story that you can say, Hey, I know you, you've never had something with this story behind it or made this way before. And yeah, I agree that definitely gets people nowadays interested looking for experiences that aren't cookie cutter. I think what we actually mentioned pre-show wanting to possibly talk about social drinking versus occasion drinking and social drinking i guess i more mean through the week or just casually and natural wines these co-ferments that we've been talking about maybe low alcohol these like pretty labels with flowers and like a hazy pink wine in the inside this makes me think of through the week wine whereas the french wines are starting to give off more like banquet vibes these days yeah i, I think that's a really good point especially some of these lesser known ones too. I I think it's more you're out with, it's a weekday, you're out with friends at a wine bar where like the point of the happening is like the conversation and the socializing. It's not necessarily the wine. Whereas like when you're at dinner and you're sitting down, you're thinking about the food and that people want a very formal wine kind of scenario. I know at least my friends are much more open to a sommelier walking them through wine at a nice meal rather than when we're out at a wine bar. They just want something that tastes good and, and works with the weather that's going on at that time. Sure. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Cool. We're almost done here. I the next one will be wine cocktails and then I think I'm I think that's a lot of the list that for me yeah. wine-based cocktails. I don't know if you've had many recently. I recently had a Negroni uh, Spagliato, which I know was all the fame on TikTok last year, I think, um or 2 years ago. I had not seen them on TikTok. I don't really go on TikTok, but I had them when I was in Milan and when I went to Piemonte last year. And I just think they're great. And the optimal example of rather than having all spirits in your Negroni, it's like having that Prosecco really allows you to have a cocktail and the same flavor of the, oh God, is it Aperol? But <laughs> without having all, all the alcohol in it. Yeah, I'm definitely, there's two factors that influence my cocktail and maybe like wine cocktail consumption right now. One is I'm really bad at cocktails and just I just don't have uh, interest in learning how to make them right now. <laughs> so I don't make a ton of cocktails at home, whereas I have friends who do. And also right now, my wife is expecting children, babies in the spring. We're not like drinking a ton when we go out, if we go out at all right now, just because I'm not sitting there with a $18 cocktail alone. Mm-hmm. My Cocktail consumption should increase later in 2024. This is definitely something I, I want to take a look at. There are a few bars nearby where we live that I know are doing really interesting things with cocktails and I'm sure have several wine cocktails. But I think that's the ideal thing to when you go out to a restaurant uh, to pick up off the menu. I think there's great value in cocktails when going out to eat these days. Yeah. And for those cocktail purists out there, it's a Negroni has Campari. That's Campari, vermouth, and gin. I forgot one of, yeah, I forgot. It's also orange in my defense, but I know that's like a sin. People would be like, (laughs) I can't believe you mix those up. Yeah, I drink wine. I'm sorry. But no, I I think that a mix with a bunch of the Aperol spritz was a huge craze this year. They're projecting a couple other spritzes to be big next year. So I think anything with a little sparkling wine in it and nice garnishes rather than just pure booze is going to continue. So I think it'll be interesting to see. I do see a lot of cocktails also and this has been going on for 10 plus years now with sherry and Madeira and stuff as well in them, especially sherry. So I think that's also interesting. The white port, like a white port spritz has also become popular. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they do them, especially from some of these regions where maybe the, the traditional way of drinking them is getting less popular. 
Yeah, it'd be cool to see. I know this isn't wine, but whiskey cocktails continue to pull that, pull the whiskey resurgence forward as it has been back into kind of like popular review. As people have been into cocktails, they've gotten back into whiskey, which had fallen off a little bit. I think, I think that's a good spot to leave things at. We were going to potentially touch on another article, but we went so long on these. I think we're good with just giving people an inside view from these trade trade articles more. It's interesting to talk through things that you don't really have an audience. Like basically the wine consumer doesn't really read the things that people in the industry read about them. It's like there are all these things about what wine drinkers want, but then they never see them and nobody has a point, an opportunity to ever consider them and be what think about what they're being targeted with so i think it's this is what you care about right and consumers are like no actually i don't care about that you just think i do (laughs) yeah you guys are all just telling each other we do and then you keep making it (laughs) yeah yeah good we'll have like i said 51 more episodes for listeners to look into look forward to this year and yeah hopefully a lot of great guests always open to suggestions Uh, if you guys either come across producers or or writers or anyone else that you'd like us to get in touch with and highlight here on the podcast. We're definitely open to that. Uh, I think we have some really cool guests on the docket already. So stay tuned for the rest of the year. Billy, anything else? I was going to say next week, we finally have, we've been trying to coordinate with her for almost a year now. Karen McNeil, the author of The Wine Bible. I'm really excited to to finally have her on. There's been a, a number of different issues that have led for this delay, but we're excited to finally have her. And if anybody hasn't already check out the wine bible it's one of my it's the book that i recommend to everybody who's just trying to learn about wine because it has it's very approachable but at the same time there's so much detail you can use it as your resource for a really long time and it also has a narrative piece in food so we're really excited to have her on next week as well nice. that yeah, is, I, saw, yeah. I, I saw some um hot take karen mcneil posts on social media recently about low and no alcohol uh, uh movement so maybe we can touch on that yeah. Yeah. Save it for next week. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get to see what she said. But uh, yep. So that's our episode for this week. And we'll be back with another episode and a fresh interview next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.